So a fellow comes to your door and says um, that he loves Jesus. Maybe two, probably. They love Jesus. They believe the Bible. And the Bible says that Jesus is like the Father, but is not of the same essence as the Father. And they'll even tell you that, properly understood, the Greek New Testament, which they almost certainly don't read, really says that, but that all the translators, except for theirs, have lied about it. What are you going to do? They love Jesus. Isn't that enough? It's a Rodney King approach to Christian theology and piety and practice. Why can't we all just get along? They say they love Jesus. Who are you to say that they don't love Jesus? Are you mean? Narrow-minded? Bigoted? Judgmental? Pharisaical? Cold, dead, orthodox? Or are you a Christian? There was a fellow in Alexandria in the 4th century who said, I love Jesus. I believe in Jesus with all my heart. I believe the Bible with all my heart. And the Bible says, and we believe, the people that he represented, that Jesus is like the Father, but he's not of the same essence or substance of the Father. That, in effect... From all eternity, Jesus was adopted, but is not naturally related to the Father, not eternally begotten of the Father. And when the churches heard this, they gathered together 318 bishops, pastors, basically. Just think senior pastors. In the 4th century, you can't say, when I say bishop, you think of a guy with a funny hat and who doesn't really do anything except show up occasionally and make ceremonial appearances. These are like these guys were more like Byron. They were more like senior pastors of congregations than they were regional administrators. Right? And we, we met, we the church, and we listened to them. And at one point, one of the, uh, you know, these folks came. They were known as Arians. They came with a confession. And then there was a compromise group, and they came with a confession. And then there was another compromise group that said, you know, let's just confess certain biblical phrases. We'll just confess certain biblical phrases, and we'll agree that these phrases are true. Where would that have gotten you? Do you agree as to what they mean? Well, no. One side says... That they mean that Jesus is like the Father, but he's not of the essence of the Father. Well, what's at stake if Jesus is like the Father, but he's not of the same essence? Hmm? I heard the, I heard the S word somewhere. Speak up. Salvation. Salvation is at stake. Why is it necessary for Jesus to be of the same essence of the Father? Why is it necessary for Jesus to be God the Son in the flesh and not uh, a God, but 
of the same essence. Why is that necessary? What, how many gods are there according to Scripture? One. What's the most basic uh, statement about that in all of Scripture? I'm going to teach you, if you don't know Hebrew, I'm going to teach you some Hebrew this morning. It's very short. We're going to say some Hebrew together. Right? Deuteronomy 6.4. Deuteronomy 6.4 is the most fundamental confession about God in all of Scripture. Right? I'm going to say it for you in Hebrew, and then you're going to repeat it. Shema Israel, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. Shema Israel, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. You can do it. Shema Israel, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. Shema Israel, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. Right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. God is one. He's not many. That's a basic biblical datum. That's a given. Arius and his followers were saying, well, no, God is not exactly one. If Jesus is not of the same essence, right? In other words, if God the Son incarnate, if his deity is not of the same essence of the Father, how is he going to save us from our sins? Well, he can't save us from our sins. He, he must be of the same essence. So your salvation is at stake. So when those folks come and, and knock on your door, and they, they present themselves as Jehovah's Witnesses, and tell you all these things, they're repeating a heresy that was rejected by the whole church in Nicaea in 325 A.D., rejected again in, in uh, 381 A.D., and rejected by all Christians in all times since. One of the things I do when the Jehovah's Witnesses come to my door, they don't come very often anymore. <laughs> I, in the old days, the hobos used to mark your home. If you gave food, you know, then they would mark it and say, well, these people will give you food. If you didn't give food, if you came to the door with a shotgun, they'd mark it that way. Don't come to this house because they answer the door with a shotgun. I wonder if the JWs have marked my house. I haven't seen that mark anywhere. But when they come to my door, I pray uh, for them, and I recite the Nicene Creed. Because this is what all Christians in all times and all places believe. I don't have to reinvent the wheel because because we sat down as a church and we read the word of God in the original language. We prayed, we debated, we heard the Arians, we considered their claims, we considered the compromise claims. Well, is there, we can find a way to... No, actually we can't. And we rejected them. And, we've all, and we rejected them ever since. How about this? God's word says the following things about God. That he has feet, that he has hands, arms, legs, and even in Hebrew, you might not know this, you might know this. In Hebrew, well, when, uh, when, God, uh, when, when somebody gets angry, their nose gets hot. That's the Hebrew idiom for getting angry. So does God have a nose? And God is said to get angry, and God has said in Hebrew, uh, it said that his nose gets hot. Does God have a nose? Does he have eyes? Literally? 
Well, one of the very earliest heresies in the history of the Christian church was a movement called the Anthropomorphites. The Anthropomorphites, who said that God is bodily, that he actually has a body. Does God literally, in Genesis 6, God is said literally to have repented of having created humanity. As your pastor has said to you, I know, I've heard him say it. I'm sure he said it to you many times, and I've heard him say it on the podcast, that uh, repentance is a change of mind. Now, we change our minds all the time because we're ignorant, right? We don't know. You, 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 uh, you're, you're driving, and, and I, as I, this happened to me on the trip down from Cape Girardeau. They just closed the highway <laughs> and didn't give me any alternatives. I'm thankful for Google that helped me out. Highway 97 was closed. Too bad for you. Uh, turn around, go home. So I, I had to change my mind. I had to change my route. And I had to do that because I was ignorant. If God has to change his mind, it means he's ignorant. Really? Is that the God of the Bible? Where was, where, where were, as God asks Job in, in chapter 38, where were you? You can put me on trial, God says to Job. Sure. I'll, I'll, I'll appear for trial, but first answer me. Riddle me this, Batman. Where were you when I spoke reality into existence? Oh, that's right. You didn't exist. Shut up. <laughs> You're not qualified to appear to, to uh, put me on trial because I spoke existence, right, creation into existence by the power of my word. That God has eyes and ears. That God really didn't know how things were going to turn out. And, and then he thought, well, crud, that didn't turn out very well. Are, is God in the kitchen? It's like, I did what I always do. It just didn't turn out. I don't know what happened. That's God? No, these are pictures. These are analogies. These are ways of thinking. Um, John Calvin said that Scripture... As a whole, he, he described as baby talk. He said, balbutira, which is in Latin for, it's on a monopoetic, it's Latin for baby talk. Scripture is baby talk. Right? God condescends. He stoops over to help us understand him. And he gives us ways of thinking that we're not supposed to take uh, absolutely, in absolute terms. But when God is said to have eyes, we understand he doesn't actually have eyes. This is a way of, of helping us understand that God sees. When God is said to have ears, we understand he doesn't actually literally have ears in himself. We're not talking about the incarnation now. We're just talking about God as he is in himself. He doesn't actually have ears. He doesn't actually have fingers. God doesn't have a, wasn't a finger that you could see that came and inscribed the Ten Commandments, and yet they're said to have been written by his finger. These are images. These are pictures. Right? But the anthropomorphites in the second century said, no, God is literally bodily. And again, two fellows will come to your door uh, in white shirts and black ties and black pants. Right? They'll ride up on bicycles, very polite fellows. And they'll tell you, no, God does actually have a body. He does actually literally have a body. And by the way, you can have a planet too, just like, and et cetera, et cetera. How do you know they're wrong? Well, the Bible does say, and and plus, how many times have you said to someone, well, how do you know that the Christian faith is true? And you've said, well, I, I feel it in my heart. And you're, and you're 
your Mormon neighbor comes to your house and he says, you know how I know Mormonism is correct? Because I feel it in my heart. I've had a burning in the bosom. Oops. You didn't mean to be a Mormon. (laughs) I know you didn't mean to be a Mormon. (laughs) But you practically actually came really close to being a Mormon. If you read the Bible the way they do, and if you make decisions the, the way they do, it's hard to avoid the conclusions they come to in some cases. Now, if you know the history of Mormonism, it's not too difficult. Learn a little bit about the history. Guy sticks his head in a, in a hat, right? Gets, uh, has magic spectacles, and he gets tablets from an angel named Moron. And, right? The angel's name is Moroni. I, I think that was a joke. I mean, I really think, they, like, let's see if I can pull this off. I'm going to call this angel moron, and I'm going to stick my head in a hat. And lo and behold, they bought it. Unbelievable. Greatest con in the history of humanity. Well, since, since, the, since uh, Muhammad did essentially the same thing. Hey, I got a series of visions. Let's go kill the Jews. How do you know the, how do you know the, the Muslims are wrong? They say that Jesus, right? They say they believe Jesus, he's a prophet, and they honor him as a prophet. They say they believe the Bible. They do. They say they believe the Bible. They also say it wasn't Jesus who was on the cross. Do you know whom they say was on the cross? Simon the Cyrene. That was on the cross. Jesus was not on the cross. Jesus did not die, and Jesus was not raised. What does the Apostle Paul say? If we say Jesus was not raised, what are we? Most pitiable of all men. How stupid are we if Jesus was not raised? All right. Now, these are ways of... of so when a modern-day anthropomorphite comes to your, your house, how, how are you going to respond to them? Well, again, we've confessed against these things. Um, so here's, what, here's my pitch. The, the reason you want to be confessional... And creedal. So let's start with creeds, and then we'll go to confessions. One of the practical reasons you want to be creedal and then later confessional is because you're not the first person ever to read the Bible. We're not the first people ever to read the Bible. We're part of a great family of Christians that's existed since, really, Adam after the fall. Right? And we're connected by faith to Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses, and David, and the prophets, and the first century Christians, but we're also connected to the second century Christians, the third century Christians, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, and so forth. Those are all our people. uh, What I teach when I teach church history, I'm teaching family history. So please don't think that you know, the, the, the apostles got it right, and then the, they squirreled the truth away in a box, and it, you know, it sort of gradually got lost. But there were five people in the mountains in Switzerland who preserved it, and then it was rediscovered in the 16th century, and then, then we found it again in the 19th century. There's a, there are people that tell that story, and, that, and there's really almost no evidence for that story. Truth is, all those people that went before us, those were all our people. And, you know, you, I'm sure you've got family that you don't get along with, family with whom you, you don't agree, but they're still your family. Right? I know that's true of my family. I love my families, but most of them are crazy. But they're still family. 
And I still know and I still appreciate the history that I have or that they have and that we have together. All right. One of the challenges then, I mean, so just just doing this little sketch. When am I supposed to stop, by the way? Okay. One of the challenges we have as Americans is that we tend to be ahistorical. You ever see Jesse Waters take a microphone in people's faces? Right, just recently, uh, Jesse Waters stuck a microphone in some young people's faces, and he said, "When was I kid you not? You can look it up; it's probably on YouTube. When was the War of 1812?" It's a true story, and they said, oh, "I don't know, 1832." Where was the? I kid you not. This is. I'm not. You think I'm making this up? And I, I promise you, I'm not making this up. Where was the Vietnam War? <laughs> Where was the Korean War? Right? And these people, I kid you not, they did not know. It's a good thing the firearms are locked up and the wife was around because I thought, you know what, it's just too much for a historian. I can't can't stand it. it. It's overwhelming. It's because we're Americans and we build things. We're busy. We're active. But we don't we're not really much interested in history. In some ways, America exists as an act of rebellion to history. I know, don't get me wrong. It's the 4th of July. I love this country. I'm, I pray for this country. I'm deeply concerned about this country. I think any reasonable person should be deeply concerned about this country. But we, but we have some family traits as Americans that are problematic. And one of them is that we don't much like history. And, and American evangelicals are very much a part of that tradition of not liking history. How many of you think, don't raise your hands. There's not an altar call. <laughs> but the buses are white. You know. <laughs> also, afterward, when I'm done, I'll sing softly and tenderly and then you can come forward. But don't, don't raise your hands now. But how many of you secretly suspect that the Apostles' Creed is something that Roman Catholics say and that people who say it must be Roman Catholics? Uh, well, I'll confess. I thought that first time I walked into a church that was saying the Apostles' Creed, I, right? I left uh, Southview Baptist Church, Baptist Church, and we and went across town to, uh, to this little Reformed congregation to meet a friend of mine and to see what this was all about. And I walked in. I was late, of course. And they were standing up and they were saying the Apostles' Creed. And the first thing I thought is, holy mackerel, Alan's going to a Roman Catholic church. I thought if you said the Apostle, I knew there was an Apostle's Creed. I didn't know what was in it, but I knew there was one, and I knew Roman Catholics said it, or they were liberals or something. It wasn't good, though, because we, we were Bible people. We were, we were never mind my, my people couldn't explain to me Romans and Ephesians, and that one of the deacons told me that, well, those are doctrinal books, and we don't really do that here. But we're Bible people. Some of the Bible... Some of the time. And that the folks in this place that, it, that were confessing the Apostles' Creed actually helped me understand Romans and Ephesians. And they took, it through, they took me through it verse by verse, phrase by phrase, clause by clause, and showed me how it all hung together. I think there's a connection, actually, between their saying the Apostles' Creed and the way they handled the, the Scriptures for me and, and opened the Scriptures for me. So we're Americans, and as evangelicals, we're sort of suspicious of all of this. We're cut off from the past. But the truth is, we're, we've been included in a, in a Christian church that has, has long pre-existed us. 
we're, we're not the first ones. We haven't invented it. And the truth is, everybody has a creed. You go to a congregation that says no creed but Christ, right? That's a creed. It's a bad creed. It's a short creed. It's an inadequate creed, but it's a creed. And I can tell you it's a creed because after the service is over, you go up to them and you say, you know what? I want to, I don't think you should have no creed but Christ. I think you should have another creed. And you know what they'll say? Get out. We, we, we know we have a, basically we have a creed. Our creed is no creed, but that's a creed. It's a bad creed, it's a short creed, but it's, it's a creed. Everybody's got a creed. Creeds are like belly buttons. Everybody's got one, some of us know we have them, and some of us don't. How you could not know you have a belly button, I don't know. For some of us, they get harder to find as time goes on, but... But I won't mention any names, Byron. Why did you know I was going to say Byron, huh? Part of our problem is that we like new things. We think new is cool. We think new, shiny is important and shiny is great. And the Apostles' Creed is old. And the Apostles' Creed is somewhat complicated. It's, we say things in the Creed uh, for reasons that, for historical reasons that, uh, that are somewhat complicated. For example, we say descended into hell, and that makes you nervous. What? Why do we say that? Well, actually, if you look into the history. Uh, early on, uh, buried and descended into hell were actually, they actually meant the same thing. But eventually people began to think that he went to the place of the dead and made an announcement or whatever it was he was doing there, taking a vacation. And it, and it came to be used sequentially. So there are some ambiguities. But you know what? There are always ambiguities in a family. You ever had a family meal where you just kind of kept your mouth shut while people said things that made you really uncomfortable? Welcome to the family. That's my life. So we, we have all these challenges. We like old thing, we like new things, uh, but we also, as American evangelicals, like uh, 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 some old things, like some heresies. We're having a big discussion now um, among American evangelicals about the Trinity, and you have folks formulating. Uh, phrases and language about the Trinity in which they're suggesting that God the Son is eternally in his being subordinate to the Father. You say, what's wrong with that? Well, A, it's not in the Bible. B, we don't confess it. They're changing the doctrine of the Trinity. There's leading, really well-known, well-regarded evangelical theologians saying that God isn't uh, now what he will be tomorrow. God is not now what he will be tomorrow. And this guy is considered orthodox. In fact, that to say that God is not now what he will be tomorrow is heresy against the Catholic faith. He ought not be teaching where he's teaching. I'm not going to say his name, but it's not good. And you can't say that God the Son is eternally subordinate to the Father in his being. You can say he decided from me, he willed eternally to submit himself to the Father for our sakes for salvation, that's a different thing, but in his being, in what he is, not what he will do for us, but what he is. You can't say that. And one of the reasons you can't say that is John 1, 1, NRK, Enho Logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God the Son is, now here, I'm going to drop a word on you, ready? Consubstantial. He is of with substance, 
same substance as the Father. Whatever it is that makes the Father God is what makes the Son God, is what makes the Holy Spirit God. You know what? Everything I, I used to teach the doctrine of God. Everything I learned about the doctrine of the Trinity, I learned from the Athanasian Creed. And we don't even know exactly when the Athanasian Creed was written. It wasn't written by Athanasius, we know that, so it wasn't the 4th century. Sometime after the 4th century, and sometime probably before the 7th century. So, you know, 400s, 500s, 600s, somewhere in there, somewhere in, in uh, probably in France, people following the teaching of Athanasius, who ends up being the principal defender of the Nicene and Constantinopolitan Creed. That's, you tried to say that. <laughs> Right. Nicaea is 325, Constantinople is 381. We modified it. The, the last bit about the Holy Spirit we added in 381. So that's the creed that we say. And then with a minor, with a, an important but short addition uh, from the uh, 6th century, the Council of Toledo. Right. Hello. Hey, that's a great podcast. You ought to listen to that. I know that. All right. I love it when my phone goes off in, in public. Okay, well, that's all right. All right. Everything I know about the Trinity, I learned from the Athanasian Creed. And we don't even know, as I say, when it was done. But when you look at the Athanasian Creed, you want to see it, you go to rscottclark.org and click on Catholic Creeds. Catholic doesn't mean Roman, it means universal, it means ecumenical. Rome is not, by the way, just to set your hearts at ease, Rome is not Catholic. Rome is a 16th century Italian sect. Rome is not Catholic. Rome is a 16th century Italian sect. Everything that makes Rome, Rome, was really formulated and decided, for the most part, uh, in a a 20-year council in at Trent, right, uh, in the 16th century. The medieval church is our church. It was a confused church, but it's our church. It's not Rome. So don't think, don't assume that the medieval church was the Roman church. It wasn't. So when we say Catholic, we mean, it's just Greek. There are two Greek ways of saying universal. One is ecumenical and the other is Catholic. Both Greek words, Catholicos, means universal. Oikumenikos means universal. So the, uh, the, uh, the, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the definition of Chalcedon from 451 on the doctrine of Christ, and the Athanasian Creed on the Trinity and the doctrine of Christ. Meditate on the Athanasian Creed. You go to rscottclark.org and click on the Catholic Creeds there, and and you can see all these documents. And just read the, the Athanasian Creed. You want to learn the doctrine of the Trinity and avoid dumb, unnecessary errors, people making stuff up who don't really aren't qualified, don't know what they're talking about, don't know the history of the church, haven't really uh, engaged with the great Christian tradition, don't appreciate why we said what we said, aren't some of them really even trained in systematic theology. One of the great evangelical systematicians isn't formally trained in systematic theology. He wrote a big old systematic, everybody thinks it's great, and he's teaching silly stuff about the doctrine of God, because well, he just reads the Bible and he wrote out what he thought. Or we could read the creeds. We, so th- here's the deal. Why we have creeds is this is our way, and, and confessions, this is our way of reading the Bible with the church. This is our way of reading the Bible with the church. It's not replacing the Bible with human documents. You can show, if you can show the church that the Nicene Creed is wrong, 
from Scripture. And you can show the church the Apostles' Creed is wrong from Scripture. You can show the church that the Athanasian Creed, the definition of, of Chalcedon, is wrong. Or in my case, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgian Confession, the Canons of Dort. If it's wrong, we'll change it. We should change it. Word of God is above all other documents. Right? That's what we mean by sola scriptura. But what we don't mean by sola scriptura is that I get to decide what the Bible means by myself in my closet without consulting anyone ever at any time. Because then that puts me in charge. Not the Bible. Right? That's not sola scriptura. I, in my closet, by myself, autonomously deciding what it is the scripture must say. Right? There are, there are famous evangelicals who say, well, I'm going I'm to read and preach this passage as if no one's ever done it before. That's a really bad idea. I'm going I'm to build a car. I'm going to drive a car. Right? I'm going to bake a cake as if no one's ever done it before. Forget recipes. Recipes for, for weenies. I'm going to fire that bad boy up to 800 degrees and throw that in there. And, and Mama says... Uh, that's not going to go very well. Certainly the cake's not going to turn out well, and, and you're probably going to burn the house down. I don't think you should do that. How does she know that? From experience? Boy, it's the same thing with the church. We, we learn from the experience of the church. It's a bad idea to say that, that the son is like the father. Or that, or later on in the fourth century, right? Or later in the fourth century, people said, "Well, okay, the Son is of the same essence, but guess what? The Holy Spirit is like the Father and the Son, but He's not of the same essence." And that's why we added the bit about the Holy Spirit in three eighty one to say, "No, the Holy Spirit is of the same essence. God is one in three persons." And that's why God the Son is qualified to be your Savior and to be your mediator, to be your preserver. And the Holy Spirit is powerfully applying the work of Christ to you, giving you new life, raising you from death to life, and, and connecting you to the, to the risen Christ. And, and sanctifying you because he's God the Spirit of the same essence as the Father. One God, three persons. We learn that from uh, from Scripture, but we're, from reading Scripture with the church. This is what Martin Luther was talking about at the Diet of Worms in 1521 when he said, and I quote, Since then your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer without horns and without teeth, unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason. I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and, and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. He probably didn't say, here I stand, I could do no other, God help me. I'm sorry, he probably didn't say that. One of my jobs as a church historian is to sort of spoil nice stories. But what he said was powerful and important enough. He stood on the word of God. But, but do you notice what he did when he stood before the whole world and stood on the word of God? He basically confessed about the word. He didn't just quote scripture. He confessed an understanding of what the word is. That was a confession about the word. He confessed the Christian faith. And and you know what we did as Protestants of the Reformation? We said that the Roman communion had departed from the ancient Christian faith as summarized in the Apostles' Creed. We wrote commentaries on the creed. The guy that I worked on specifically wrote one or two or actually three commentaries on the creed. 
John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion are really a giant commentary in the Apostles' Creed. Book one on the Father, book two on the Son, books three and four on the Holy Spirit. My Pentecostal friends say, you don't believe in the Holy Spirit. And we respond, well, we, Calvin wrote two, half of the Institutes on the Holy Spirit. We just have a different understanding of what it means to believe in the Holy Spirit. We think that bringing dead sinners to new life is a miracle. We've always confessed, the faith Luther confessed his confidence in the scriptures. He didn't just simply quote scripture because Nicaea didn't simply quote scripture. Confessing the faith is biblical. It's, uh, there are confessions of faith. We've already uh, recited Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema, Shema Israel, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. It was recited every Sabbath in the synagogue. Right? Mark 12.29, Jesus quoted the Shema in response to the scribe as a prologue to the law. Probably reflects the synagogic practice. Paul alludes to the Shema in Romans 3.30 when he says, God is one. Right? That's, a, that's a synopsis of the Shema. Paul alludes to it in, uh, again in, Roman, in Galatians 3.20 when he says, but God is one. James 2.19 says... Basically, here's my the Clark paraphrase, the Clark International paraphrase. Uh, you believe God is one, you do well. What he's saying is, you guys gather on the Lord's Day and you say the Shema, and that's great, but guess what? Satan can also say the Shema. Now, he's not saying don't say the Shema. He's not saying there's anything wrong with the Shema. He's just saying it, that Christianity doesn't begin and end with saying the Shema. So I know you might be worried about dead orthodoxy. Well, there's also dead pietism. Right? There's also dead subjectivism. Right? The Mormon says he has a burning in the bosom, but guess what? He's not a Christian. So we don't have to set the confession against a warm, vital, personal relationship with Christ. We want to have both things. We want you to, James wants them to, believe, to, to personally believe the Shema, and then he wants to see fruit flowing out of their confession of the Shema. Don't tell me, in other words, he's saying that you believe God is one, and you treat your neighbor as if he's not. That's his complaint in chapter 2. That's all he's up to. Don't tell me that you believe the Shema. Don't tell me that you, you love God. Don't tell me that, that you believe the Christian faith, that you trust in Jesus but when somebody in your congregation comes to you and says, I can't pay my bills, I'm going to get kicked out of my house, and you say, be warmed and filled. James says, get out of here. That's all that is. There's a synopsis of the book of James. And there are other confessional formula in the New Testament. First uh, Timothy uh, 3.16 is a confessional formula. Look at the First Timothy 3.16. Great indeed we confess, by the way, notice that verb. Watch the verbs in 1 Timothy 3.16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Now, watch these verbs. And what are we doing? We're confessing together. Manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That's a confessional formula. First, uh, Paul uses other confessional formulae in First uh, Timothy, apistos uh, hologos, a faithful saying. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. How'd you like to confess that? We ought to confess that on Sundays. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. 
That's a confessional formula. So there are confessional formulae in the Old Testament, confessional formulae formula in the New Testament. And you can look up, there are several other faithful sayings in the New Testament. If we've died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. 2 Timothy 11 through uh, 2, 11 through 13. In the, very, uh, 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 the early Christian church, almost immediately in the second century, began talking about a rule of faith. A rule of faith. And that rule of faith eventually grew up to be what we know as the Apostles' Creed. You can find what became the Apostles' Creed, the essence of it, already in the second century, certainly in the, in the third century. So the very earliest Christian impulse is to confess the faith. We are among the first people, we American evangelicals since the 19th century, are among the first people ever in the history of the church to say, you know what, we don't need any confessions. How's that gone for us? Look at the history of American Christianity. Millerites sitting on their roofs in the 19th century waiting for Jesus to come back. Mormonism. I mean, all kinds of craziness in the 19th century. Just craziness. Christian science. If, if, you knew the, if you knew the Apostles' Creed, if you knew the Nicene Creed, you couldn't be a Christian scientist. I don't mean a Christian who practices science, but, but a follower of Christ's science. You know the, do you know what Christian scientists say about uh, reality? They're Gnostics. The very earliest heretics that we faced, among the earliest heretics we faced, were the Gnostics who said that your physical body is not real. Created reality is not real. It's an illusion. And therefore they said, not surprisingly, Jesus doesn't have an actual true human body. And if he doesn't have an actual true human body, what, uh, what happens to your salvation? Hmm? It doesn't exist because the book of Hebrews says he's like us in every respect, sin accepted. He has to be like us in every respect in order to be our substitute, in order to be our mediator. There's a true human standing before God the Son, who's true God, true man. Not truly, we can say truly, but don't say 100%. You can't quantify his humanity, you can't quantify his deity. He's true God, true man, standing before the Father, right now interceding for us. And the first, and the first church of Christ, science wants to take that away from you by denying his humanity. And by the way, and denying your humanity. If you knew the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, the Athanasian Creed, the definition of Chalcedon, you'd say, get out of here. That's a Gnostic heresy from the 2nd century. We rejected that uh, you know, um, 2,000 years ago. That's a beautiful thing. But as American evangelicals, we chucked all that. And we decided to go it alone. Going it alone, it may be great in civil life. Getting in a wagon and going to the, to, the, to the plains as my people did. My grandfather came up from New Mexico, carved out a life in uh, uh, southwest Kansas, south of Dodge. In, in dirt, in sandy dirt, made a life out of nothing. That's a beautiful thing. But it's a terrible way to conduct your Christian life. Your civil life is one thing. Your economic life is one thing. Your Christian life, in, in that sense, is a, is a distinct thing. It's a terrible way to conduct your Christian faith. Do you see what I'm saying? Rugged individualism is great for economics and civil life, but a terrible way to live your Christian faith. Okay. We've got a few minutes for questions. So what did I say that is completely cracked and makes no sense, or what can I clarify, or how can I help? What did I say? I, see, I used a word that you'd never heard before, and it doesn't... What is that? 
You got to answer. You got to ask a question, or I'm going to start cracking jokes, and we'll all regret that. Yes, sir. My churches confess the Heidelberg Catechism, which was published in 1563 in Germany. And again, you can find a good translation of that at rscottclark.org. Um, uh, we confess the Heidelberg Catechism, published in Germany in 1563. The wonderful summary of the Christian faith. If you were re- if you if, if were you to read that and meditate on that, I promise you, you won't regret that. First question is, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is that I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who by his precious blood is fully satisfied for all my sins and preserves me so that without the will of my Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, he makes me heartily willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. The whole Christian faith is summarized in one question and answer. So Heidelberg Catechism, read that, meditate on that, it'll change your life. The Belgic Confession, published in 1561, written by a pastor who was being chased by Spanish uh, Romanists who were trying to cut off his head, who eventually did catch him and who eventually hung him uh, in, uh, uh, a few years later in Belgium for, uh, for the sake of the gospel. He was martyred for the sake of the gospel. And then the Canons of Dort, adopted uh, by all the Reformed churches, basically in 1619, 1618, 1619, adopted thereafter in response to James Arminius, who said that God looks down the corridors of history and sees what you're going to do. And here comes the hook. Oh, okay. The hook, I just want to ask you a harder question. Yeah. More difficult. I'm just kidding. So we know that we come from a Baptistic world, um, the Baptist uh, adult baptism by immersion. Uh, you're in a tradition that is paedo-baptist. Um, in our Bible church world, we're kind of consistently premillennial, and the Reformed consistently Reformed. It's amillennial. We've had pre- yeah, we've been premillennial. We've got right. We've had premillennialists, postmillennialists, amillennialists. All, all that to say that it's. You have to be within a specific tradition, so to speak, to have a confession that we could say this is exactly what we confess. Yeah. So for in our world, it's a little more complicated. And as the language you used this morning on the drive-in, insofar as we agree, we confess these things to be true. So oftentimes churches in our circumstance, uh, the Baptist Second Baptist London Confession will uh, attach that to our doctrinal statement as an amendment or addendum for clarification and then say insofar as, because there are certain things in the second London Baptist confession that the Pope is the Antichrist or those kind of things that we would maybe, maybe tap, maybe tap the brakes on a little bit. Um, I don't know if you paid attention to Francis. <laughs> anyway, carry on. <laughs> so um, how, how would you help because one of the things that evangelicalism that you mentioned struggles with is that uh, it, it takes somewhat of a pride in pushing back from the established historic faith, and as a result of that, you have cults and all kind of bizarre teachings. And for, for those of us that are wanting to press in tighter, what discernment would you encourage us in terms of, uh, of us reading through confessions and attaching ourselves? I mean, we're not going to agree with everything that we read in the Westminster Confession. 
as Baptist. The age of miracles may not be done. Actually, we're cessationists, so yes, it is. <laughs> but how, how do we, I mean, you, you and I agree on everything that is essential. And it, it, so there's unity there. Yeah. So I help as, as our, my congregation and my brothers and sisters in Christ might be inclined to go and read and refine some things. And then they're going to discover some things that we may not confess. We can still partner sure. and find great unity uh, with people within a strict Reformed tradition. Probably more unity than we find in an evangelical, broadly sure. evangelical tradition. You want to address how to partner and find unity there? Probably the... the um the, the biggest thing is to recognize that you're, you're changing uh, neighborhoods and, and paradigms. Right? A paradigm is a, is a system within which you're doing something. So think of it as an intellectual, spiritual, churchly neighborhood. And when you become confessional, you're changing neighborhoods. And so that, uh, in some ways, changing cultures and changing languages, Right? So you, you have to be, you know, if you've ever lived somewhere else, you realize that I'm not where I was. I, when I lived in the UK, um, I, when I needed coin, you know, this is back when we were still using coins and paper and things. And so I, I, I used to have to pull coins out of my pocket and sort through it and see what these giant coins represented. I mean, these huge, heavy coins. And, uh, and, and I, I was reminded in a variety of ways that I wasn't, I wasn't in Nebraska anymore. I wasn't in Kansas. Literally, I was somewhere else. It was their country, their rules. I'll tell you, you'll appreciate this. I said to a fellow one time, where I was raised, yes, sir, is a sign of respect. I, I, I suspect you appreciate that. And I said to a fellow, uh, no, sir. And he got very upset with me. Because in his culture, for me to call him sir was actually to mock him as if he were royalty and not being royalty, being a commoner. I didn't mean, I was trying to be respectful and he took it as mocking. Right, cross-cultural problems, and so you're changing cultures when you when you embrace a confession. So you have to give it time. You have to give it time to learn the new culture, learn, learn the new language, learn the new way of, of seeing things. And then, as you're reading these some, sometimes foreign documents, you have to come to appreciate and work at appreciating why they said what they said. How did they come to the conclusions to which they came? Even if you ultimately end up rejecting some of those conclusions. So, and that takes time. It, uh, changing cultures, changing languages, changing paradigms—all that's very difficult. And there's a, the uh, the truth is there's a certain pain of separation and loss, and it, it's difficult. It was it was difficult for me. Um, one of the one of my favorite books on this is is a historical book by uh, uh, one of my favorite authors, D. G. Hart, Daryl Hart, and he wrote a book called "The Lost Soul of American Protestantism," and he explains what happened to American Protestantism and uh, why the why is it that the Seven Sisters of the Mainline, which is a reference to a, a street in Philadelphia, why is it that the major mainline liberal denominations became liberal because there was a time when they weren't liberal. And one of the things he points out is they became liberal by abandoning their confessions. They became liberal in part by abandoning their confessions. And then the evangelicals reacted, not by re-embracing the confessions, but by trying to be con a conservative version of non-confessional. And it didn't go very well. So, I don't know, if that, does that get where you, what you were aiming at? I guess the, one of the points I wanted to make is that we have a lot of like-minded brothers um, 
And when we go to find in, in, in the Reformed tradition, and when, when we, your pastors and your elders, go to clarify doctrine or, or, or um, find some precision in language, we're typically going to the Reformed in the Presbyterian world. We're not Presbyterian. There's no plans to become that, um, in case you're worried. You're not worried. I'm worried about what you're thinking. (laughs) But what's interesting is that one of the things that I I do now when I'm wrestling with a doctrinal issue in Romans or those sort where we are as a church, I go past the commentaries, past the modern systematic theologies, and back to the confessions and find great clarity there and then find that as my baseline and move forward. So that I make sure I'm within the realm. When we went, when the sanctification debate happened and it hit this church, one of the things I was trying to say to people, but some people didn't didn't listen to it, is that the historic faith, confessional faith, says that justification is an act of God's grace, and sanctification is a work of God's grace. It's done by grace. This is a historic perspective. And because of how we react to the new and the shiny and the modern, there was a tendency to kind of ignore, as I was trying to tell people, you're moving away from a Reformed perspective and moving towards a Catholic perspective of sanctification, where justification, Roman, where where, uh, sanctification and justification are mixed. That was the basic argument. And then on top of that, there was a current justification debate happening, which also confused these things. And so it was very clarifying to me. And then I called Dr. Clark and said, hey, there's, and he said, basically, welcome to the margins of the evangelical world. We're in this little bitty closet over here. This is the space that they've held for it. But we, I realized the hard way, people don't care. The whole sanctification thing in our world, we look at that thing and we think, what's wrong with you people? The Heidelberg Catechism says guilt, three things, guilt, grace, and gratitude. You're, you know, you have to know the greatness of your sin and misery, how you're redeemed from all your sins and misery, and how, then how you ought to be thankful for such redemption. There's an exposition of the Ten Commandments in the end of the Heidelberg Catechism, very simple, plain exposition, that explains how you live by the grace of God, in the grace of God, according to the moral law, as a consequence of having been redeemed. Anybody who denies that is an antinomian. So... It's, if you just remember those three G's, guilt, grace, and gratitude, you don't have to be a, a neonomian. You're not justified by being good. And you don't have to be an antinomian by ignoring the moral law having been justified. Right. right? But the reason we're having, the evangelicals are having the, this big conflict is, they, this is a true story, they don't know those categories. What I just told you is foreign to them. I used to, I used to teach at Wheaton College. I used to tell those kids, they used to write on the board, G, 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 and I'd lay out guilt, grace, and gratitude for about 30 minutes. And kids would come up and they'd say, I never heard that before. That's the greatest thing I ever heard. That makes sense in my whole Christian life. I wish I'd known that. Nobody ever told me that. It's in the Heidelberg Catechism that, that, they, that was published in 1563. We also believe in the providence of God. Yeah. And in his providence, you have to go preach. So we're yes, going to shut I, this down. Yeah. So if you have questions that you want to ask Dr. Clark, I'm certain he would be happy to answer those questions. How would you like to receive them if you can't receive them here on site? I'm easy to find on the Internet. Uh, 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 Nigerians write to me all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Heidelblog.net and use the contact page. I also put...